There's an old adage that goes, Rome wasn't built in a day. It's a saying that has found a prominent place in the English language and states, in essence, that nothing great ever comes quickly. It's an adage that the early medieval ruler Charlemagne would probably know and understand all too well. When he was crowned King of the Franks in AD 768, he inherited a kingdom that was fraught with cultural and intellectual turmoil, despite the fact that it was on the rise. How did he address these problems? What came of his attempts? And how did the changes he sought to bring about change the landscape of Western Europe forever? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The years following the collapse of the Roman Empire, circa AD 476, were a period of great socio-political upheaval in Western Europe. With all semblance of order gone, hordes of invaders from both outside and within the empire's borders, namely from northern, central, and eastern Europe, rushed to claim vast swaths of Roman territory for themselves. One such tribal confederation was the Franks, a Germanic people hailing from the eastern banks of the lower Rhine River in what's now Germany. Pushing into the former Roman province of Gallia, or Gaul, in present-day France, they established a permanent presence there, uniting the Gallo-Romans under their own banner to form the Kingdom of the Franks in AD 496, with Clovis I as its first ruler. What began as a tiny sovereign state straddling the modern German-French border in the late 5th century became, by the mid-8th century, a sprawling empire that stretched from the shores of the North Sea in the north, the Mediterranean coast to the south, the English Channel to the west, and the banks of the Danube River in the east. As the years wore on, however, and more people were subjugated and ultimately consolidated under Frankish rule, difficulties began to emerge. For starters, there was no common language among the subjects of the Franks, as they all spoke various Germanic, Romance, or even Celtic languages. Writing, too, for those who were literate, varied depending upon the region, with each having its own style so that universal readership became virtually impossible. As most of these subjects were Christian, there was no common liturgy, and few among the clergy could read or write themselves. In short, the kingdom of the Franks was in a state of cultural and intellectual stagnation. Something had to be done. The great 14th-century Italian poet and historian Francesco Petrarca, better known in English as Petrarch, is the man who famously bestowed the moniker of the Dark Ages upon the centuries immediately following the collapse of the Roman Empire, aka the Middle Ages. It's a reference to the extinguishing of the cultural light of Rome as compared to the darkness of the period that followed. While the moniker has come under scrutiny from many contemporary historians, it is, in my opinion, a not entirely unbefitting name. Indeed, as one can deduce from the state of the Kingdom of the Franks, above, much was lost in the way of ancient knowledge and culture amongst the general populace in early medieval times. Latin, for example, the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, was only kept alive within the church in Rome. Throughout Western Europe, it fell more or less into obscurity, as only a select few could read, write, and understand it. As such, lords, kings, and even the common folk reverted to speaking the regional dialects of their respective countries. These are the European languages we know today, like German, French, English, Italian, etc. By the time the subject of today's episode came to power in AD 768, such problems were glaring and needed to be addressed. He went by many names in his own time and throughout history. His original title was Carolus Magnus, literally Charles the Great in Latin. The Germans know him as Karl de Grosse, which means the same thing in their tongue. But to the French and English speakers, he's known as Charlemagne, or Charlemagne, King of the Franks, and later Holy Roman Emperor. When he assumed the throne in the late 8th century, he began his reign by focusing less on conquest, as his predecessors had, and more on the aforementioned cultural and intellectual problems that were plaguing his dominion. 
It all began when he had trouble finding qualified court scribes in which to chronicle and document important events and mandates, for the aristocracy was unable to not only read and write, but they had absolutely no knowledge of the Latin language, the preferred lingua franca of the time. Even more appalling to him, a self-proclaimed strong adherent of the Christian faith, was that his clergy were illiterate, as well, and therefore unable to read or preach from the Bible. What's more, he himself was illiterate, and was willing to go to great lengths to learn. Looking to the past, he sought to revive Rome's former glory, particularly its conversion to a predominantly Christian empire in the 4th century. Realizing what was at stake, he issued a capitulary, a fancy word for decree, in 787, which called for the creation of schools, and invited the most learned men from throughout Western Europe to join him in his court, to educate both himself and those in his immediate circle. Several scholars answered the call. The first to do so came from Italy, most notably Peter of Pisa, who was tasked with instructing the king in the Latin language. So steadfast and determined was Charlemagne to learn that an early biographer recalled how, quote, he used to place wax tablets and notebooks under his pillow on his bed, so that, if he had any free time, he might accustom his hand to forming letters, unquote. Not only does this reveal his dedication to his degree, but also just how important knowledge and scholarship were to him, a startling characteristic that was otherwise severely lacking in many of his contemporaries. Others soon joined the king's court, Paul the Deacon of the newly acquired Frankish realm of Lombardy in northern Italy, Theodolf of Orléans, a Spanish Goth from France, and Paulinus of Aquileia, from whom came knowledge of history, a standardized text of the Bible, and grammatical reforms respectively. It was at this time that Charlemagne was also introduced to the ancient arts of rhetoric and dialectic, both of which had been staples of classical education, hailing back to the days of ancient Greece and perfected by the likes of such renowned philosophers as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. He was particularly taken with astronomy, and that selfsame early biographer noted how, quote, he learned the art of calculating, and with deep purpose and great curiosity, investigated the movement of the stars, unquote. But of all the learned men who accepted Charlemagne's invitation, perhaps the greatest and most significant was an English monk by the name of Alcuin of York. Hailing from the Northumbria region of England, he had been a deacon at a local, that is, English monastery, before he was ultimately appointed as the head of the newly established palace school in the Frankish capital at Aachen in what's now Germany, a post which he held for 14 years between 782 and 796, with the exception of a brief three-year sojourn between 790 and 793, at which time he returned to his homeland. Among other things, Alcuin was instrumental in the creation and adoption of a standardized Bible, with whom he was engaged in a sort of friendly rivalry with Theodulf of Orléans. He wrote textbooks for his students, the like of which would be the standard in Western Europe for centuries to come, and established the trivium, the studies of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, as the bases for education. One of the biggest innovations of this period was the development of a new, universal script so that the literate class could read and understand texts, namely the Bible. Known as Carolingian Minuscule, it was comprised of legible calligraphic lettering that introduced something unheard of up to that point, lowercase letters. Using a script that had been developed in the monasteries of Corby and Tours in present-day France as a source of inspiration, it forever changed the way language in Western Europe was written. Up to that point, all capitals had been used to write inscriptions and even illuminated manuscripts. The Latin language also became standardized at this time, retaining grammatical rules and features of the classical language spoken by the Romans, while leaving room for the introduction of new words and phrases. This explosion of linguistic reforms led to some truly extraordinary statistics. Prior to Charlemagne's reign, from the period roughly between AD 400 and 750, 
About a thousand manuscripts were made altogether throughout Western Europe, with only around 500 surviving up to the present day. At the height of what we now know as the Carolingian Renaissance, between 750 and 900, some 100,000 manuscripts were produced, of which anywhere between six and 7,000 survive. It's thanks to this exceptional stretch of time that ancient writers like Homer, Herodotus, Virgil, and Marcus Aurelius have reached us, as original manuscripts from antiquity have long since been lost. This unprecedented output was, as previously stated, directly tied to Charlemagne's reforms, and reveals just how dedicated he and his court were at elevating the kingdom of the Franks to the ranks of the Roman Empire's former glory. Of course, language and literature weren't the only areas to flourish and thrive in the Carolingian Renaissance. Art and architecture were also affected, which saw the revival of classical Mediterranean, specifically Roman, art forms in such disparate places as Northern Europe. Small-scale sculpture, frescoes, and mosaics were revived, many of which have survived to the present. Their craftsmanship shows great skill and attention to detail unseen since ancient times. This renewed interest in the classical arts led to various artistic movements in Western Europe, specifically the Romanesque and Gothic styles that would take center stage over the ensuing five or six centuries. Architecture, too, incorporated elements from a variety of styles, most notably early Christian, Roman, and Byzantine, the last of which it's important to remember was the Greek-dominated eastern offshoot of the Roman Empire that survived for an additional millennium after the western half fell. One of the finest architectural achievements of the Carolingian Renaissance was the impressive cathedral at Aachen, which seamlessly blends elements from all three of the aforementioned styles. In the years following Charlemagne's death in 814, it became the seat of the German archdiocese, and the king himself was buried beneath its floors. While Charlemagne's initial plan may have been to revive the glory of Rome, the resulting revival or renaissance was a momentous period of European history in its own right, a veritable golden age, the first of its kind since the old order had collapsed. Not only did it revitalize his dominion, but it laid the foundations for what Europe would become not just in the late medieval era, but the renaissance and enlightenment that followed. It's no wonder that modern historians have dubbed him the father of modern Europe, and it's highly unlikely that he himself knew just how important and lasting his reforms would be for posterity. Today, both the French and Germans claim Charlemagne as their own, but if you ask me, he just as readily belongs to the whole of Western civilization, for his contributions were truly invaluable and shaped everything we know up to the present day. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. What I find most interesting about this period of history is that it shows just how important the past can be. Charlemagne looked to the past for inspiration, and while he may not have fully captured Rome's former glory, I should say that he came pretty darn close. Not bad for an early medieval ruler. Remember, if you'd like to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, of course, so please do so wherever you catch your podcasts. Join me again next week for a look at an event that single-handedly brought about the end of an entire age, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. 